The Book Thinger podcast is a lively discussion about romance books, culture, and workplace romance. This is episode 33 featuring Sally Thorne in Sydney. Book Thinger would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this episode was produced, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We also acknowledge the contributions of Aboriginal Australians to our shared literary heritage. Welcome to the Book Thinker Podcast, talking about books we love, especially romance. Kill a fairy fast on the Book Thinker Podcast. Welcome back to the Book Thinker Podcast. I'm Kat Mayo from bookthinger.com.au, an Aussie blog for romance readers. A few months ago, Sally Thorne was in Sydney for the Books by the Bridge author signing, and she generously agreed to spend Sunday morning chatting with me about her hugely popular debut novel, The Hating Game. This book was recommended to me by the fabulous Danielle Binks, whom you might know from her work with the Love Oz YA community. If you love the style of Jennifer Cruzy, Rachel Gibson or Kristen Higgins, you need to check out The Hating Game. Make sure you stick around after the interview for details on how you can win two signed copies of this book. Yes, you heard that right. We have two signed copies to give away. You can find information on The Hating Game and all the other books we talk about in this episode by going to bookthingo.com.au slash podcast and clicking on episode number 33. Hi, Sally. Thank you for joining us at the Book Thingo podcast. Oh, hi. Thanks for wanting to talk to me. Oh, <laughs> I was so excited when I got the email saying that you were available. We were just lucky that you were in town for Books by the Bridge. Yes. How was that first signing? On Twitter, I think you tweeted that it was your first one. Yeah, I went into it with like zero expectations, like I do with everything, including this entire book process. I was thinking, honestly, I had doubts if I would sign a single book. My mum came, so I was like, well, that's one guaranteed fangirl. <laughs> because um, she is literally my biggest fangirl and I was like well there's one signature. My goal was to sign about 10 and I thought that, that I would know that I'd been successful if I'd done that but I ended up signing 10 by about like 9.45 in the morning. I couldn't believe it. All these people were just walking over and reaching into their bags and I'm thinking oh it's going to be for Pamela Hart who is sitting <laughs> next to me and she's a very prolific writer and then they just slowly pull this blue book out of their bag and they would say would you mind signing this? And, you know, every single time I just, I felt like my jaw just dropped every single time. You've had what I think most people in the industry would consider to be a dream run for your first novel. Can you sum up what the past 12 months were like for you? I think it's probably more like more than 12 months now, but I guess in a way I would agree with that, that everything just fell into place really easily and just like it was meant to happen. I think that the key with everything beginning was getting my agent. I got an agent in New York and I was introduced to her by Christina and Lauren who write under the combined title Christina Lauren. They passed my manuscript on to their agent. I got contacted by Taylor Haggerty at Waxman Level and she said to me, Oh, are you talking to any other agents at the moment? <laughs> I've tried to play, play it really cool. cool. I played it so cool. I was like, no, not really. But in reality, I think I was probably in my pajamas in my study in Canberra. So once Taylor got a hold of my manuscript and we made a few little tweaks, she put it out to a list of publishers. She said, we're going out to this list here. 
I looked through the list and even to my inexperienced eyes, I knew that they were all the big publishers and I said to her, fine, yep, pop it out. Really, I honestly did not think anything would come of it. I thought I'll get 10 rejections and, you know, maybe some feedback. Like that's what, that's what this is going to bring. But I ended up with an offer for a two book deal with HarperCollins in under a week, wow. which was unreal like you can't imagine like when you don't think that anything is ever going to come of each step of the process the book just keeps surprising me at each point and then from there on it just really was a bit of a blur in terms of doing a few edits um, the edits that I had to do to my manuscript I wouldn't describe them as major but it was great to have a professional editor on board to show me where things needed to be tightened up it was really long because that's one of my um, one of my faults is I'm just rather prolific so it was it was probably 25,000 words too long so it just had to be trimmed down so I'm sure there are many arguments that I've cut out and are on the cutting room floor that <laughs> just yeah because those two characters can just argue a lot and for a long period of time and yeah even from them sending me cover you know things saying what do you think of this cover I've just been really surprised by how included I've been in every step of the process and yeah, when, just when it's been released, everyone's said, you know, contacted, well, not everyone, I'm sure people hated it as well, but the, com the comments I've gotten are that they really enjoyed it and, you know, it's, it's gotten some good publicity coverage, particularly in the US, so, I mean, wow. So Start, did, it, yeah. did having that level of success change your life at all or, like, how has it affected your day-to-day -day life? I think it just has been the key that's just unlocked everything for me. I wrote it in a time when I was actually extremely miserable, which is kind of makes me sort of smile when people tell me that it's a funny book. And I don't know how it can possibly be funny because I was totally miserable in my government job writing the most boring contract clauses <laughs> of all time, day in and day out. I was surrounded by really nice people, and don't get me wrong, like it was a really good job, but totally miserable. And when I got the book deal and they wanted me to start writing my next book, I actually took a year of leave without pay. So that was kind of scary. That was a big a risk. A big, big risk. And then when that year came up, I said to them, hi, it's me. I'd like to come back. Could I work part time? They said, mm, probably can't accommodate that. And I just decided, well, I was totally miserable there. Maybe I just shouldn't go back. So. I'd always said that I wanted to work in a bookshop and that's what I do now, just casually, just in a bookshop and also do a little bit of freelance technical writing, I guess you'd say, on the side. But overall, I think this book has just changed my life completely because now I'm not stuck in my Groundhog Day going to the same office that I was so sad in. While you were writing the book, were you involved in any of the romance communities or did you fall into romance fiction by accident? I mean, I've always been kind of interested in the genre. I've been to an RWA, Romance Writers of Australia, conference in the past, and I did a few short courses in creative writing. So I met a really good friend through that, Gemma. Hi, Gemma. And she, she and I would meet regularly and, you know, go over each other's work and so offer... Like yeah, critique. Yeah, uh, critique. She's my writing buddy, essentially. But really I'm kind of I am pretty out of the loop like people will ask me if I'm going to this or that conference and I don't really know what's coming up I need to sort of get myself together a bit more 
overall, I would say that I pretty much just wrote this book just in my study, by myself, just in Word. I think that makes it even more amazing. I think I read in an article, I think it was for the Canberra, the Canberra, Canberra Times, Times, that you wrote it over six weeks. Mm. And then you've just mentioned that it required sort of just very light editing, which I think is kind of really amazing. Well, I, th I think in between, so the, the first draft was six weeks, and then I, I did probably take another year. Just every time I thought of the book, or I was bored, or it was a Sunday afternoon, I would just open it and I would just find a scene that I felt like working on and I would just move the words around. I'm kind of addicted to just changing like the sequence of words in a sentence over and over and over again and really trying to focus on cutting out words that didn't need to be there. I don't know if I succeeded in that, but I would just spend my time just fiddling with it and it was when I was to the point where I could not possibly get it any better than it was that my agent appeared in my life like a beautiful fairy godmother <laughs> and <laughs> here I am talking to you. Well, I think you did an amazing job because one of the things I loved about The Hating Game is that it felt like a complete book that understood itself. So there are some books that you read where uh, some of the themes come out in the beginning but sort of get lost by the end or there are issues that come up sort of halfway into the book but aren't really properly introduced in the beginning. Whereas in The Hating Game it felt like a well-edited, well-rounded book where the character motivations are understandable from mm. the start to the finish. So I think that's I keep saying amazing, but I think it's amazing. So. Uh -huh. Well, I would have to um, give a lot of credit to my editor at the time, Amanda Bergeron. She really helped me to hone that. wasn't necessarily in there when she first got the draft. And it can seem like really daunting when someone tells you to make something clearer about why a character is doing what they're doing, but you can really paint it in just with brush strokes, you know, a sentence here, like a change of phrasing here. and build the mood of the character throughout the book. I'm a total amateur at this. I will never claim to be any shape of an expert. I don't know how to do this myself, but I've just had some really good people giving me advice on what to tweak in the manuscript. I read in an interview, in the same interview, that the plot for The Hating Game was sparked by a writing prompt about a nemesis. Yes. But obviously, to de develop that into a longer and richer story, did you always know it was going to be a romance, and when did it develop into a love story? This book is the book that I wanted to read and it's completely self-indulgent. I completely admit that. I wanted to read something that was fluffy and easy to read and had heart to it. I love books that just have a little bit of sad and a lot of happy and a lot of working each other out and conversations and like couch making out and it's it honestly the best things in life. <laughs> and you know that's why I said when I was talking to Taylor my agent when we were first having our first conversations I really honestly said to her does anyone want to read a book like this like this book is just basically my dream come true and she said no I think people will hopefully my self-indulgence is your indulgence. Yes, definitely. <laughs> well, I, I think The Hating Game fits into that niche between chiclet and romance. And with chiclet, it's always a bit tricky to get that sense of humour to a place where it's broadly accessible and that most people find funny because sense of mm. humour is such a quirky, tricky thing. So is that you? Is that your sense of fun and funniness coming out in the book? 
Absolutely. I honestly, I didn't think that this book was actually funny at all. I didn't know. And so peop when people s started to tell me that they laughed at this part or that part, I was quite genuinely surprised because I wasn't trying to be funny. And I think that the book is really just how I think there's a lot of me in this book. And I think that I, what must have worked was that I didn't try at all this is the result, I suppose. So if people find it funny, that's really great. Was it difficult to let go of the characters once you had written the book and then you were exposed to sort of strangers' views of what you had written? No, I don't think so. I think that I feel like I left the characters in the perfect place and I have so many people ask me to write a sequel. You have no idea. They want me to write a full series. And that is just the ultimate compliment when someone finishes a book and they can't let it go and when they want more. I had someone say to me yesterday at the signing that she's on her third reread and she's just reading it. She finishes it and then she has to start it again because there's just not enough. I mean, what an amazing compliment to me that I, she's trying to squeeze out every bit of it that she can. I think it's one of those books that it's like, I remember I enjoyed this book so let, I'm having a you know, I'm bored or having, I'm having a down day, so let me just flick to a page. And once you start reading that random page, you've got to go back to the beginning and read the whole <laughs> thing because it's so great. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, that was kind of my goal. I have always loved books that have set piece kind of scenes in them, that when you are just like, you've gotten home from work and you are just feeling totally disgusting and your feet stink <laughs> and you just need something for 10 minutes to just get you out of it. And so you grab this book and you you think to yourself, I'm just going to read that scene. And that's, I, that was really a lot of what I was hoping to accomplish, that I could give people a time out from like life by hopefully finding that one particular moment that they can just return to. And you just, it, it's like you keep reading scenes of books and you're hoping that it's going to reveal itself finally. You know, like you, you know what the characters are really thinking and they just, you know, there's a look or there's a part of it that you just hope that if you just reread it this time it's going to unfold into more. But <laughs> and I think that's a strength of your writing especially with first, second and third books based on my experience as a reader there's a tendency to be somewhat heavy-handed with the details to kind of guide the reader through the story. Mm. The thing I love one of the other things I love about the Hayden oh, you <laughs> <laughs> is that it allows the reader to interpret the words and not force them to understand the characters until they can understand the characters and that makes rereading it a lot richer because then I already know how it's going to end and what they were doing and when I reread it I start reading more things into the story. Well that's a great compliment to me, thank you. Well you deserve <laughs> that. Oh, uh, no, I, we should be the ones thanking you for writing such a great book. One of the aspects of the hating game that remains a mystery to me is the setting. Where is the story set or is this meant to be a mystery? Well, it all stems from laziness. <laughs> um, I support this. <laughs> I'm like, I've, I just set it nowhere because I thought to myself, I'll work that out later. So even to the point where I had my book deal with HarperCollins, that was one of the first questions that I asked my editor. I said, it's set in Nowheresville for now. Where should we set it? I should talk about that. And she read the full manuscript and she said to me, actually, it kind of works the way that it is for two reasons. Number one, these two people, their entire world is that building for at least the first half of the book. 
And we have all felt like that sometimes in our job that, you know, you've, if you've been there for a, a long day, it's like the, the building is the world. So I think that that helped that sense of like they were the last two people on earth, you know, when they're just by themselves in that room arguing, that kind of hopefully contributed to that feeling. Um, and second of all, that if we want this book to be read by other people in other countries, this might actually help because if you're in another country, you can, if you want, imagine that that big city is in your country. So when the editor in um, Piatkus in the UK read it, she assumed that it was set in London and Australian readers have assumed that it's set in Sydney. Yeah, well, my friends and I have had discussions over where we think it's set. For some of us, it felt American. For me, because Josh was making tea, I was like, UK maybe, <laughs> So there's. So for you, did you have a particular setting in mind? I just didn't focus on it because I didn't want to have to start getting myself sidetracked in research or getting caught up, you know, if I wanted to set it in New York, I have not been to New York. So I just set it aside and let myself write it just in some city, in some building, um, with the assumption that I would work it out later, but I never had to. Because the setting wasn't as big a character in this particular story. The, the setting as a character is the office. Yeah, exactly. The apartment. Yeah. Fair enough. The story is told exclusively in Lucy's point of view. Was that also a conscious decision or did it just flow that way? It was, the, this is the first book I've ever written in first person or attempted book. I should, you know, everybody who's ever written anything has got like a folder in their computer filled with the worst possible beginnings <laughs> of the worst novels of all time. And I'm putting my hand up to say that I've, I've started a lot of books and I've got a lot of documents that are about six chapters long and they're all in third person. And I love writing in third person because I loved being God and I mm -hmm. loved giving people little, you know, little moments that could be viewed by an, an independent observer. But in this case, I think I probably may have started initially writing it in third person. But ultimately, I thought what people want to read in romance books is intensity. That's what I want. I want to feel like I'm there. I am there and I can hear every single tick of that clock in that room and you are in it and you're feeling it. And there's no way that I could achieve that if the reader is not in Lucy's tiny little shoes. Um, so that was the decision. Was there a temptation to write scenes from Josh's point of view? Not really because I personally enjoy books more when the other side or in this case the opponent is completely unknowable and that's the point of the book as well. He's her opponent and so if we start to get little glimpses into his mind of how cute she is and how much he likes her and how much he wishes he could be different and softer with her I think that it would have just taken the tension out of everything and gosh, isn't there just such a temptation now to just write the entire book from his point of view? It's done all the time in fan fiction and one of the Fifty Shades of Grey book, wasn't it written from Christian yeah, Grey's point of view? And I mean, I could do it. I could do it so easily, but would now we that want you've it? said that, you're gonna get like a billion emails going, please do it, please do it. Um, okay. All right. I admire that restraint. But I think other readers might be like, there is some hope that she might do it. Are you guys gonna misery me? 
are you going to like kidnap me and strap me down in a room <laughs> and break my legs? And <laughs> no, we wouldn't do that. We would bribe you with lots of lovely things. Until no, no, it's honestly, it's going to take a misering. It's interesting that your it. writing sort of inspiration, motivation seems to happen under miserable circumstances. I think this is the, <laughs> yeah. this is the theme that I'm detecting. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, just um, make me as miserable as possible and, and see what I can produce. <laughs> <laughs> One of the other things I love about your writing is your way of describing your characters and their world through colour. I'm addicted to colour and I cannot possibly write without colour. In everything I've ever tried to write, colour has been something that's just been really integral to me. I don't know why. I think I did study film at university and so I think sometimes people tell me that some scenes play out in their mind like a movie and colour is really important in cinema and I think that that's probably an influence on it. Yeah, I just I feel like it enriches things so much in ways that other senses can't necessarily do. I don't know why. I think everyone just has really personal connections to different colours and for me it's just like painting with words I guess. Wow didn't that sound wanky? But, but that's, that's <laughs> what you do and when I, I wrote a review of your book on the blog and one of the things that I called out was this beautiful way that you expressed the story through colours and it wasn't just I mean for people who haven't read the book shut your ears but the what, is, what are you doing here if you haven't read the book? <laughs> oh no, you have to read this book. But the ending, the grand gesture at the end that we didn't realise had been mm. there all along was to do with colour. But it wasn't just that, it was everything else. It was Josh's shirts. It was, you know, the colours of basically the, the, the colours. Yeah, yeah, the colours <laughs> described the world as Lucy saw it, which mm. I thought was fantastic. What's your favourite colour? My favourite colour is yellow. I love yellow. It's just pure happiness and I'm, I'm glad you a, asked me an easy question. <laughs> I'm looking at a yellow hat on the table. Like, <laughs> That's my mum's hat oh, but okay. yeah, no, yeah, yellow and um, I'm really glad you picked up on my colour addiction. <laughs> no, but I, and I think that I'm hoping we'll see that again in your future yeah. works because it's just it's really beautifully done. So you've been compared to Sophie Kinsella and Laura Florand and I remember recommending you to a friend your book to a friend by comparing it to Jennifer Cruzy, does that feel surreal? Like, what is the rock star author life like for you? <laughs> that's, that, that's like a, uh, a joke question, right? <laughs> um, to be compared to anyone is incredible. To have more than one person reading this book is incredible. Every single thing beyond the point of one person reading it has just blown my expectations wide open and to be compared to any other successful published author is just incredible to me. I actually, um, I have an online Twitter friend named April. Oh, April, I know April. <laughs> How um, cute are you, April? <laughs> I actually ordered your book, a signed, so first of all, when people found out there were signed copies of your book, I got so many messages going, where the hell did you get this book? <laughs> and I'm like, well, you know. You hooked them up. Yeah. So I ordered it and then I sent it 
overseas because April lives in the Philippines. And then she's like, this is a weird cover. This isn't the cover that I could. So she actually bought the US cover from her local bookshop sure. as well. Mm -hmm. So I think now she's just waiting for you to visit the Philippines so oh, that she can right. get your signature or she can come to Australia it's... and get your signature. I've got so many cute, adorable readers in the Philippines. What's going on, girls? I, I think it appeals to our sense of humor. Okay. And that sense of fun, but without losing the tenderness of the romance as well, ah. and, the, and the heat of the romance. I mm. mean, also, the fact that you mentioned Josh's abs, that already gets 50% <laughs> of the romance reading community in the Philippines. Hello there. <laughs> His pointless abs that don't exist for any other purpose other than he was bored. But you do know what? I really loved that. I was like, you know what? Of course he has abs. Of course he goes to the gym because he's bored, like why not? And yeah. he watches ER, that's perfectly fine. Yeah, exactly, exactly. His, his social life is very rich. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. Your second book, The Comfort Zone, is listed on Goodreads and slated for a 2017 release. Can you tell us a little bit about the book and if it's related to the hating game? She's giving me an awful look because we had a chat about this before the interview. Oh, guys. Feel free to interpret this question <laughs> any way you wish. Okay, well, the number one question I get asked is, how's the next book coming along? When's the next book? Can we read the next book? Which is a lovely question. Thank you so much for asking me that question. But I'm having a lot of troubles with writing my second book. Um, the Comfort Zone is a fully drafted book. It's got a beginning, a middle and an end. It just doesn't have the same sparkle. And I'm just talking with my publisher at the moment about getting some extra time just to getting it to where I need it to be or possibly deciding that that may be my third book and writing a new second book. So that's probably not what people want to hear and it's really not what I want to be able to say but I've got to be honest, you know, if you've written a book in your study by yourself with no thoughts that anyone will read it and then you try to write a second book knowing that people will read it and you have a deadline and you've got a quite a bit of pressure, it is the opposite writing condition to how you wrote the first one. And it's just, as an amateur, I'm finding it very, very difficult to overcome. That's probably my non-answer <laughs> to that question. So, but in terms of, is it related to the hating game or not? It's, ah. is it going to be a standalone as well? It's a standalone, yes. Can um, I just say how rare that is and how welcome that is? that you're writing books that do not have to be read in order mm. and so on because mm. part of the appeal of romantic comedy for me is that I read it, I'm happy and then I yeah. can imagine the happily ever after and nothing sort of gets in the way of that. Exactly. So we're not going to have a, another book with Danny from Design meeting um, someone new and then there's a, a cameo of Josh and Lucy at the end in the parking lot of Bexling Gammon or something. No, I'm not going to do that. Or am I? <laughs> Great <laughs> you, idea. Had, were there any secondary characters that readers have asked you to write more about that readers want to know about more? I wish that they'd asked me about Helene and Mr. Bexley because, oof, I mean, come on. That was a, a hating game. relationship. A, there is another level. That's a mature hating game going on there. And you know what? Maybe I should write a special scene just of them having a bit of a make out in the elevator. He's old and gross, but 
old gross people still make out in elevators. <laughs> it's interesting because I've read a little bit some comments around the portrayal of Mr. Bexley. But, oh really? <laughs> yeah, but I but I also have had discussions with other reader friends around how romance happens to people who are not the ideal hero with abs or the ideal heroine who's happy and sassy and so on but we hardly ever see those in a romance so that secondary relationship to me I mean in one sense it felt like oh this is kind of a fun parallel to Josh and Lucy yeah but completely over the top and completely caricature characters mm. on the other hand I kind of feel like you know there's something interesting going on here that we don't really explore in mainstream romance fiction because the characters aren't lovable enough for us to want to cheer for the happy ending. In your mind, do you have a story for them? Oh, for sure. I think that they definitely had some sort of weird tension between them that at any moment possibly could have just exploded out. I mean, I mean, he was just a little Humpty Dumpty of a man, probably covered in liver spots and he's as tall as he is round and he has that, you know, when they tuck their shirt into their pants and the belt sort of is this like global circumference around the middle. He's a total asshole and a grump, but so is Josh. And Helene is, you know, beautiful and French and Lucy totally idolizes her. So she, in a sense, is very seen in a very um, biased way, you know, I'm sure right, maybe to anyone else. Yeah, so to anyone else, these two characters could look completely different, but that's how Lucy sees them. You know what? Maybe I will. Okay, decision Challenge. made. Second book, Mr. Bexley and oh, Helene. Gosh. <laughs> be. Well, the other thing about Mr. Bexley that I've been mulling over is the fact that he got to be CEO and the fact that Josh was loyal to him. So what does that tell me about Mr. Bexley's character? Other than maybe Josh just wants to keep his job, but you know, mm. at the end of the book, he basically implies that he wouldn't have any trouble moving jobs and going somewhere else. So there was obviously something there, other than Lucy, because they didn't meet until Josh was already sort of way into his career in, in his company. Anyway, I digress. Now I've got, I've, now I have you, I, I've been extracting promises from you about <laughs> subsequent books. <laughs> about characters that people probably really don't need to imagine making out in elevators. <laughs> well, that elevator scene, by the way, was the scene, I was reading the book and I, I, it felt a bit more like chiclet in the beginning, right? Because it, it had that frenemy sort of tension. As soon as that elevator scene came up, I was like, I'm totally on board with this story. Mic drop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? What did I just read? No. Uh, you read you read another elevator kiss. How many and, and Lucy says it herself in the history of mankind, I mean, how many elevator kisses have there been? It's not a unique scene by any means. I will completely confess to that. Hopefully just in the execution and the fact that it is those two particular people in the elevator, hopefully that made it work. I loved it. But I can see it worked for you. I was like, wow, now I'm so into this book that I cannot stop. And then it was great because I loved it. So no, um, no complaints there. Okay. So, where can readers find you this year? You were just at Books by the Bridge. Yes. I know you'll be at Fictionally Yours in Melbourne in September, which is, which is already sold out actually. Yeah. So are you planning to do any other events? 
if I get asked to do them and I can get to them, I will. Aside, please ask, please ask. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was um, that was not me saying that in a different voice. <laughs> um, yeah, if I get asked, I will definitely think it over. I've got to balance it with my normal life and my general poverty. My first ever um, signing yesterday went so well and was so lovely that the introvert in me, I think, has been convinced that it is a really lovely thing to do and to really to meet people in person is so nice. I've been invited over to the US, um, but I just don't think I can make it, not at this stage, but see how we go do a crowdfunding <laughs> initiative for you to come to the countries where readers are waiting crowdfunding is for like getting blind kittens operations it's not for like flying my butt around the place <laughs> um and finally would you be able to help settle an ongoing debate between my romance reading friends would Ooh. you ever write a hero who drives a hatchback absolutely i love a person that has a dreadful flaw <laughs> Absolutely. I could even imagine Josh driving a hatchback. I'm sure. That's what I said. He wouldn't care. No, He's no, got no. no friends to impress. As long as he could fit his gym gear in the back. I was just thinking the gym bag just has to fit in the back. Just, yeah. I mean, come on. Excellent. So there is no shame in it. That's all we have time for in this episode. A big thank you to the always fabulous Rudy Bremer, who produces our audio. You can find the show notes at bookthingo.com.au slash podcast. Just click on episode 33. Thanks to Sally Thorne, we have two signed copies of her amazing book, The Hating Game. To win, all you have to do is tell us who you would like to hear narrate The Hating Game in audio and why. You can enter via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram or Litzy. Just make sure you tag it with hashtag bookthingo. That's B-O-O-K-T-H-I-N-G-O so we can find your entry. Or you can leave a comment on the blog. Bonus marks if you send us a video or audio entry. And we might even play it in the next episode. The giveaway ends on April the 21st, 2017 and is open to overseas readers. We cannot wait to hear your suggestions. Before I go, I want to give a shout out to our listeners on Twitter. Especially Vasiliki Veros, who said that episode 31 with Sandra Antonelli was the best podcast ever. One day I'll have Vasiliki on the podcast and it will be a freaking awesome conversation. And a huge welcome to Aztec Lady who recently joined Twitter but has blogged at Her Hands My Hands and at Karen Knows Best for a number of years. She said that episode 31 was amazing. We are totally chuffed. Thank you for listening. Thanks also to Glazer at Paper Wanderer Blog for linking to episodes 28 and 29 on her February roundup. If you like diverse stories, you should go ahead and check out Paper Wanderer. In the next episode, I chat with book blogger and reviewer Katrin Allen, who you can find at Katrin's Musings, at Dear Author, and at Audio Gals. Until then, I hope you have a fabulous fortnight of reading. <laughs>